look, you're a busy clinician. There seems to be lots of drama about Nordics. You know, some people saying they're contraindicated, other people saying they're the best thing since sliced bread. Where does it go? You know, what should you actually do? Well, we're saying that they probably halve the rate of hamstring injuries. It might not be quite as good as that. It might be even a bit better. We don't really know. That's our best guess at the moment. So if you're thinking about include them or not, you can either wait around for the randomized controlled trial into elite level athletes where in a blinded manner they get assigned Nordics or they don't get assigned Nordics and then someone else is going to come out and argue you didn't give them enough, you gave them too much or, or whatever the case may be. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast features someone that has been on my hit list for a long time, and that is Rod Whiteley. So we tried to line this up a couple of years ago, but weren't able to, but I'm super, super excited to line this up and get this chat in the book and get it out, because it's an update on where we are with the Nordic debate. After the recent publication from uh, Franco and Pilazeri, there's obviously a increased interest in the effectiveness of Nordic. So it's that topic that we dive in with Rod in this episode. But we also have a little chat around his methodologies as a physiotherapist out at Aspatar in Qatar. As well as the hamstring Nordic debate, we also dive into ACL reconstruction and the decision-making for return to play during that process. And we also have a little chat around where clinicians go to learn. That's based off a paper that Rod put out a couple of years ago, which I think was super, super interesting. So we dive into that as well. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. I measure you have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. 
If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Rod Whiteley. Rod Whiteley, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. I've just caught you just, just having a drink there, didn't I? Sorry, I've killed you. Thank you for coming on and giving up a, bit, a little bit of your time um, during a very busy period, so I really appreciate it. My pleasure, mate. I appreciate the opportunity and I uh, appreciate the stuff you do. My pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, Rod, I know you're a, a humble guy, so people will uh, be interested in your a little bit of your story before we dive into some hamstring, some uh, ACL chat as well. So a bit of background on you, if you don't mind. Yeah, no worries. Uh, physiotherapist, trained in Australia back in the dark ages, started practice in the late 80s, the late 1980s, and worked for, well, basically worked in rugby league, rugby union and baseball um, up until I came over here, really, which was 2010, 20, yeah, 2010, when the Iceland volcano blew up. So collision sports, a bit of fast running and throwing injuries were the stuff I was interested in. Um, and since coming here, the focus has shifted a bit because they play a different kind of football. Um, so we look at more of those related injuries and we got exposed to handball at the same time, which was interesting too. Um, yeah, so yeah, basically that's it. PhD and did specialization. And since working over here at Aspatar the last 10 years, just shifted focus a bit. Nice. So I know we've got hamstrings and ACLs on the list of things to chat around, but is that your two main areas of interest? And if so, why those? Um, well, because the very first thing that I did when we came over here was just look at injury burden. Uh, and so we got to get up, well, not me, none of this is me. I, I need to do that up front. One of the big strengths here at Aspatar is it, it genuinely is multidisciplinary, like everyone says they are. And, you know, I used <laughs> to do the same thing back home and that might mean just you know a surgeon or you know a sports doc or you deal with a podiatrist or something but literally we're all under the one roof here and the odd thing about this place which is the the attraction frankly for me is we're responsible for the medical care of all of the registered athletes in the country so whereas you might look after one club or one university or something like that we basically got the contract for the entire league for all of the sports so here at Aspatar, we're kind of the mothership, but out in all the different clubs and federations, they're our staff as well. So it puts us in a unique situation to be able to do stuff at scale. So then thing one, when the boss got me here was they wanted to kind of improve their research output a little bit and you know focus more on stuff. And then we just got to talk about it. And I'm a big believer in the Pareto principle. So go fishing where the fish are, you know, Rob Banks, because that's where the money is. Uh, so we just looked at what were the biggest burdens for us. And um, ACL is a low incidence but high burden injury. And hamstring by far cost us the most number of days lost to training in your kind of football, soccer. So I think in the last eight years or so, we've lost in the order of 70,000 days to training, of which we can put down about... 25,000 days to muscle injuries and the majority of those are posterior thigh so that was just a no-brainer for us is we first of all have to look at that and see if we can do anything any better uh, yeah and that that's kind of where it flows is we would just want to try and have the most impact we can while we're here so when you say the boss who's the boss oh sorry um the boss oh, of the rehab department here um so when this place was set up it was kind of the vision of 
the founder of the place, um, who's one of the uh, one of the important people here, and he actually had injuries himself. Uh, and my boss, who's a physio, who's in charge of the rehab department and in charge of this national sports medicine program, he. Um, uh, when they got to setting it up, it, at first it was, you know, perhaps we should just try and bring a few clinicians over into the country, you know, bring a good surgeon, bring a good doctor, whatever. But then they said that was kind of thinking too small. What you really need to think is um, we have to get a sports culture in the country. We're going to have to be able to, you know, play more sport, get an academy, start to do all of this stuff. And, you know, that's how now here we are inside the sports zone. Um, we've got all of these things set up and it was, yeah, it's real, some real forward thinking with the pure aim of um, just trying to improve outcomes for the athletes. And along the way, things have happened like, you know, we're hosting the World Cup next year for football, which I guess you guys are interested in. But we also, like we hosted the World Handball, um, we, there's tons of sporting events that are going on here all the time we've had we have diamond league all the time we had world athletics you know all of this stuff there's a really big culture around it now that's yeah just growing all the time so cool place to be last question before we get into a bit more of the technical um technical chat that i'm guessing for the people that listen people that are listening are here to, to to hear from you about but in terms of qatar there's been plenty of people that have been on the podcast who've, who've worked over there or have been through there and have since left in your time there, how has, how have those aims been met that the sport culture within the country, like that's a, that's a pretty big aim, not just throwing up buildings and, and um, getting some decent staff in there. So how's that changed over the years that, that you've been in post, obviously leading up to this huge um, event that is the world cup next year. Yeah, it's, it's an odd one because these changes are incremental day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. So you don't kind of notice them. But every so often, then you step back and go, geez, we've come a long way. So I see things like, you know, culturally here at the moment, it's no secret that just men are more interested in sport. Women, it seems to be, are more interested in education. That's just the way it is in the mo- at the moment. So we don't have as big an impact uh, with women. Um, but we've seen uh, the adolescence, whereas there wasn't as much of a sporting culture a long time. And then Largely, I think the academy can be thanked for this, uh, the academy program, but then they realised, because there's only, at the moment, there's about 3 million people in the country, but about 2 million of that are people like me, expats. So of the local population, there's only about a million. I mean, you know, that's not even a big town in the UK. So they realised to have something like a football league that's going to be competitive, if you're just playing against the same people, the standard's not going to be very good. So... They've then said, all right, well, one of the original things they did was went across to Africa, did a massive scouting campaign. And then it was purely with the aim of, you know, come over here, go through our academy, go through that with us, play in our league. Along the way, you get an education. You can, you know, at the end of it, if you want, go back home. If you want to stick around here and play, carry on. But that lifts the standard of the league. Then it meant that the local players also have to get up to that standard as well. So uh, Asian player of the year last year was a local kid, product of the academy. Um, the high jumper obviously is a massive success. Basham was um, 
athlete uh, diamond league athlete of the year last year just won the gold medal that i'm sure you're sure with the the fantastic stuff with the italian guy yes yes yeah yeah and again you know this is all a product of these guys have just invested in it but then tried to make it around a culture not just you know head hunting and we'll take this for a quick win this is all about long-term sustainability so yeah just seeing those big changes and look from my end, I still don't know football. It's not a sport I've grown up with. I've come to appreciate it. I, there's a team that we now go and watch. So I, I'm sort of getting to understand the game a little bit. But it'll never be like rugby league, rugby union or baseball, which I can you know, really argue the nitty gritty of. But just seeing the standard of the game seem to lift. And then that's reflected in how well the team's doing kind of at the international level, which frankly, for a population of a million, they've got no Crazy. right to yeah. be competing well at the international level, and they are. Yeah. 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 Like you say, I didn't realize it was so small. I didn't realize, I thought three million was quite small, and you said two million are actually expats, and then you've got one million um, like population. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Okay. One thing that I want to chat to you about, I think pretty fits in nicely at this point, is uh, a piece that you did about where clinicians go to learn and pretty much everywhere apart from research papers or that forms a, a very small percentage. And that's one thing that I suppose everyone's seen with the amount of courses, the amount of infographics, the um, podcasts, article, etc. And and maybe the research papers do get kind of pushed to the, to the side uh, for whatever reason. So I'm just interested to know from a kind of physiotherapy rehab point of view, why do you think that's the case? And second question that I'll probably come on to and probably ask again, because that first one's big enough, but what can we do to help that? Is it dissemination through infographics and things like that? Or is it a, or is it something else? Yeah, okay. So first part first, why is it the case? I'm not really sure. Um, and I have to give credit where it's due here. The idea for that... Um, survey and the paper that we did came from a, um, a study on coaches and it was the it was both I read the study on coaches and I caught up with an old mate from uni back in Australia years ago now and we just got to chatting and he's a really bright guy and you know we were going through at the same time and everything and we just got to chatting about a, a course or a conference or something that we'd done and an offhand comment he made was he hadn't been to a course or a conference in five years I was like, geez, okay, well, that, that's a bit jarring. But then it started to make me think, you know, what does actually change people's practice? And that was the germ that I got out of that training, that coach's paper. Because if you say to any physio or for that matter, any doctor or whatever, you know, how do you stay up to date? How do you ensure you're giving your patients? Well, of course, they're going to, you know, they don't want to, you don't want to sound dumb or you don't want to mm -hmm. sound like you're doing the wrong thing. Well, I read the best journals. I do yada, yada, yada. So, you know, they're not going to freely admit that to you, at least not without a few beers under their belt. So what the tra what the coaches paper did, which I thought was really clever, and so I just stole the idea, was think about the last thing in your clinical practice you changed. I don't want to know what it is, because then there's tons of value judgment around that. And, you know, you've seen, I love the comment that the fights are so bitter in physio because the stakes are so low. Like people care so much about just things that honestly, we're not curing cancer here, guys. It's just not that important. But if you get people to come out on a limb and say, I do X, 
then you know there's a raft of people lining up to say that's the worst treatment in the world and you shouldn't be doing it and how do you... so people won't do that but if you just say think about the last thing that you changed in your clinical practice don't tell me what it is but tell me how you learnt about it so that gets to the the kind of how part of things and you know we can think about why later that's the other question for the actual mechanisms of it and that's what tapped into it for us and you know the key finding like you pointed out is by and large it's not journal articles there was an interesting little bit that kind of the more university you'd been exposed to so undergrad masters phd then people started to say that they learned off papers but even people with phds it was only about 20 percent or something so 80 percent of them learned from elsewhere at least the most recent thing that they did now the why of it um, that paper that i pinched it from and I apologize now because I don't know the name of the author offhand but let's put it in the show notes so people mm, can read absolutely. it because it was really good um, they actually went into far more depth in their qualitative research and the big things around the coaches were that um, they preferred that kind of level of engagement the discussion the collaboration with others they found that it was more rooted in reality they trusted it and it was more convenient and all the rest of it the same sort of thing needs to be done for our caper because our findings were a little bit different. Coaches, I think it was less than 1% came from journal articles. We got up to maybe 7% or something like that. But it's a similar kind of theme. So you'd need to then figure out, well, why is it that physios, but you know, doctors are going to be different, SNC, physiologists, whatever the cases may be, we've got to get figure out why that is. And then you can go to the next step of, okay, well, if this stuff is important and, you know, it is changing practice, what would be the mechanisms to put in place to make sure it works properly? And that's where, again, the, the message gets lost. But we said, okay, people aren't learning from journal articles. Journal articles, for all its warts, at least it has peer review, you know, at least there's a chance to do stuff around it. But anybody can say anything on a weekend course and that's mostly where people seem to be learning weekend courses and talking to other physios and talking to other physios is typically around hey i went to this weekend course and they did blah 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 <laughs> so all right well show me what they did you know so that's where that stuff's coming from and like i said people can say and do say absolutely anything so we said look if you if journals are probably the best suited to be doing this kind of auditing because they got mechanisms in place to to at least kind of assess some quality and do some stuff and, and we weren't saying journals should say you know practitioner x can't run it their course what we were saying is that the people plonking down their cash to go to these courses you should at least have some sort of audit so somebody could say all right well they're teaching you a b c and d all of this stuff's got really good evidence this stuff's a bit shaky this stuff is complete rubbish now it's up to you you can still spend your money on it if you want that's fine but at least you can go into it with your eyes open instead of i think back to being a young practitioner and for us it was always okay this is the dark ages but it's the new expert has come from the us so we've got to go and do their course we've got to go and see what he's got to say and so you run it and then suddenly you you were doing that with everyone and Sure enough, a few months later, you realized it didn't work, but that didn't matter because another expert was coming out. So we had to go and do their course and all the rubbish that I've done for 30 years now, just that constant hype cycle is a thing that maybe we could do something about. So one thing that's interesting, and I think this is something that's on the rise and probably has been for the last few years, and it's research reviews. There's, I'm sure there's plenty in physiotherapy. Well, I know of a couple already. There's plenty in sports science, strength and conditioning. And people are signing up five, ten dollars a month for these kind of things. I don't know if that was in. Did that come up in the in the paper? But people were actually learning from 
review services? Yeah, so we left. So one of the options was that you basically we ended up clustering it as um, electronic sources. So it, it was relatively small, but essentially more than half came from courses and conversations, and then the others were kind of down. And uh, again, I'll put the link to it because I made all of the raw data open. If somebody wants to go in and do secondary analysis, because we looked at you know splitting it by age and by geographically, you know, where the respondents were. Obviously, this was only people who were answering our um, our request to go on and do this survey monkey thing. Um, so we found some pretty big differences in terms of where you were geographically, which probably relates to your training, but just the culture locally, you know, what all your friends are doing and that kind of stuff. So it probably means that there is almost certainly not one solution that's going to fix everything. Surprise, surprise. But if it turns out that, you know, for physios in the UK or physios in the UK working in football, here's a good strategy. Whereas for, you know, whatever, physios in Greece or physios in South America or this part of South America, maybe you're better off doing it like this. I actually did a very quick Twitter poll ages ago about what part of a research paper people actually read. And very crude Bear, bear with me. Four four options, and the highest option by a long way was the conclusion of the abstract. So, <laughs> which is not which is not surprising. Yeah. But there was there was a there was a trend. About, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, when journals were actually asking authors to do little videos, like two minute videos. I don't know if that was in the physio physio space as well. It was certainly in S and C space. And I thought that was a really good initiative for those that aren't going to go deep but have got two minutes to read the conclusion of an abstract, actually get a a, a quicker, better version actually within a video in within the app or social media that you're already in. Could that be something or is there any other options that we can just get away from the conclusion of the abstract? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, it, look, you just never know what's going to catch on. Like, you know, who would have predicted you know, some social media things just catch fire and everyone has to do it and other ones equally as good just die in the arse. So you just never know what's going to be good and what isn't. So yeah, I'd say let's try it and if that helps. I, I would say I've been asked to do that once. We did the paper on return to performance in after hamstring injury. So we made the two-minute video and sent it off to them. To my knowledge, nobody, Never seen it. <laughs> nobody has looked at it. So that was an hour of my life that I wasted. But so it didn't, it didn't even get put out anywhere? Just I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't followed right. it up, so I don't look at the metrics yeah. or anything. But it's yeah. what I thought might happen was, okay, this is obviously condensed and there's a lot of nuance lost in here. But, you know, anyone who's really interested, that might be the headline thing. And, oh, okay, that's interesting. I'll go and ask these guys a question. Nothing. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, you, one thing, again, maybe this is just my bias, but um, one of the podcasts I love is um, Scientific American, and they've been doing it for uh, more than 10 years. They call it, it used to be 60 Second Science, and then there was 60 Second Health and all these other ones. It's a bit of a cheat because the podcast typically lasts for a minute and a half, two minutes or something. But basically, <laughs> it's just... Just like you're saying, it's a catchy little summary of a paper. You know, researchers in the UK have just found that, you know, frogs mating might do blah, 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 blah. And then they'll interview, get like a couple of grabs from the researcher themselves. And, oh, yeah, okay, that's interesting. They'll have a link to the paper and all the rest of it. But just like that one minute hit 
really good production values. So, you know, one minute has probably taken them X hours to do, so only Scientific American could do it. But maybe something like that coming through your feed, which, uh, not interested, not interested, not interested. Oh, hang on a second. Now I'll go and dive deeply into that one and, you know, go and click the links and actually read the paper. So do they get insights from the author themselves or it's some external reviewer reviewing the paper? It it appears to be like a, a decent science journalist is doing kind of the overall talk. And then it'll be, you know, they'll give like the quick headline takeaway and it's usually like a, a pun or a joke or something about it. But then it'll be, okay, so Rob, tell us what you did in this study or, okay. you know, you've found X, Y and Z get a, a few sentences out of the author and then they'll come back and kind of sum up to it. So it, it's a nice, it, yeah, it, 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 a little bit more than a headline, certainly not maybe as close as an abstract, but yeah, I, I really enjoy that one. And it just lets you kind of catch a broad area and every so often stuff from completely different areas. It's like, oh, hang on a second. That's, I can see an applicability to the stuff I'm doing here. I need to, that's an area of research I'd never heard of before. Go and read that and you end up on a deep dive down there. Interesting. And how often do they, this is, this is personal because I'm, I'm super interested in things like this, but how often do they put them out? Are they like a couple of times a week? Are they daily? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're getting them out okay. yeah, a couple of times a week and yeah. you know, they go through fast and listening to it at triple speed. So it's like, bang, <laughs> the whole thing's done in 25 seconds or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, they're really good. Mm. Okay. Noted. Noted. Right, let's get into the um the, the little bit of a chat around hamstrings. And one thing that I want to kick off, and we've like I feel like Nordics and the chat around Nordics has been done to death. However, one thing that came out last couple of days, I think it was, was Frank and Pelizzeri's uh meta analysis, which has caused a little bit of a little bit of a stir, which Franco enjoys doing, I think. Um so based on that, and obviously your thoughts as well, where is what what's the landscape like with the with research in in around Nordics? Yeah, well, and again, I've only because it's a preprint at the moment, and I've literally when I saw we're having the um, the chat this morning, I've had a skim of it, so I haven't gone into it in depth. Um, and I, there's a place for what Franco's done, which is the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. Fine. And okay, here's, you know, you should have done this analysis, not that analysis, not that. fine, absolutely <laughs> get that. But our point was um, purely around, look, you're a busy clinician. There seems to be lots of drama about Nordics, you know, some people saying they're contraindicated, other people saying they're the best thing since sliced bread. Where does it go? You know, what should you actually do? And so we said, well, let's have a bit of a look at it. And, you know, we did a systematic review, we meta-analyzed it and, you know, the point estimate was when you include everything, rubbish level research up to randomized control tiles, looks like they round about half the rate of hamstring injuries. Okay, now if you only include the really high quality, the RCTs, what's the point estimate? It's about the same. They around about half the rate of hamstring injuries, but of course there's a wider confidence interval. So what should you as a clinician do? Well, we're saying that they probably half the rate of hamstring injuries. It might not be quite as good as that. It might be even a bit better. We don't really know. That's our best guess at the moment. So if you're thinking about include them or not, you can either wait around for the randomized controlled trial into elite level athletes where in a blinded manner, they get assigned Nordics or they don't get assigned Nordics. And then someone else is going to come out and argue, you didn't give them enough. You gave them too much or, or whatever the case may be. You know, this was... 
There's never been an RCT that proves smoking causes lung cancer, nor will there ever be. But the preponderance of the evidence says that it's associated with it, there's a dose-response relationship to it, there's biological plausibility. On the basis of all of that, all of these other criteria, so Dole and Bradford Hill's criteria, it seems to be that this one causes that one. But we can't definitively hand on heart say it, you know. And our old mate Fisher, Fisher of, you know, Fisher's statistics and frequentist and all the rest of it, he actually argued the opposite. He said the whole thing, he was funded by the tobacco lobby, you might want to know. <laughs> Give over. <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, this is true. He, he argued that um, the association, he called it, the association between cancer and smoking was because there's an underlying genetic problem which causes cancer and also causes you to take up smoking. So it's not the smoking that causes cancer, it's this genetic thing down here that's causing cancer. So, you know, happy days. I mean, that guy could have disproved gravity if you gave him enough funding. <laughs> but I feel like, I mean, obviously the stakes are far, far lower, and that's why the fights are so much more bitter around hamstrings. But I think we're in the same condition. You do these exercises, the rates of the injury seem to go down. They don't have a hit on performance, it seems, and that was the other argument, that if you know doing this made your performance worse, well then, okay, you've got to have a risk-benefit trade-off, but it looks like there's no effect on performance, positive or negative. So, you know, use it if you want, but if you don't use it, uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So one of the things that came up again in probably the thread, I think I saw it from, from Franco, was the... Um, the buy-in from players during some of these studies and how, how many were actually partaking in doing the Nordics. And that's that's probably not only in these papers, but rife across the industry. So 50%, potentially a little bit either way. Given that number, why why would people not have it in there just in, ju- just as a, as a matter of course? I, again, I can only speak to the experience that I've had. Um... Partly, it's sometimes it's because athletes just don't like it, you know. And so um, I know that we've had some feedback from some the, the Dutchies that you know playing football in winter in the Netherlands, you're on a boggy pitch and you're asking me to kneel down on the ground, put my feet in the ground, and do this. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I completely get that. Um, okay, so that's one, you know, mate, and they need to do something different. So any athlete who says I don't like doing this. And if you have a little bit of an effort to convince them otherwise, because I think it's going to be useful, and they still say, I don't want to do it, that's fine. Mate, we've got to do something else for you. Um, another aspect, though, has been, it, I think maybe the safest way you could say it is misinformation. You know, people have said that it is contraindicated. Not only are these, you know, there's no evidence for it, but as far as some gurus are concerned, there's evidence this will make hamstrings worse. And that was kind of part of the deal here is, you know, if you go down that guru path and, you know, Guru X tells me that Nordics are contraindicated and I shouldn't be doing them. Well, hang on a second. The evidence that's there, it's not perfect, but it looks like it's in exactly the opposite direction. Well, you know, maybe now it's time to not pay as much attention to Guru X. You're on, you're on Twitter, so you see the whole spectrum of, of Guru X and, and Guru Y. But one thing you said that 30 years ago, people were getting the latest guy from the US and he yeah. was the guru. Yeah. But are people now, and I like the word, I don't know if it's an actual word, but celebritizing 
these kind of gurus online are these people i'm sorry are people tapping into these gurus basically because of social media more or is that we're seeing it more because 30 years ago there was no twitter and, and instagram is this just a, a common theme in our industry and, and and yours that people just gravitate towards these and hang the hat on information from someone because they've got a little bit of a following whether that be modern world on social media or 30 years ago when it was there was 200 bums on seats at a conference yeah there's certainly a lot more access now and it's easier to um uh, to get an audience and you know for something to go viral and then suddenly you know can really explode whereas previously it took 30 years to become an overnight sensation whereas (laughs) nowadays you know something strange can happen and then you know catches fire like it does so absolutely it's easier for these things to grow and uh, and for to get your message in front of a ton of people in a hurry but equally I see it you know things can flame out and suddenly that's yesterday's news in the short term absolutely all this stuff is a popularity machine in the long term I hope it's a weighing machine so you know when I like I'm old now so I can look back and reflect on all of the the things that I fell for I absolutely fell for you know I went to muscle energy courses and I went to all of this rubbish and then, you know, you, you go back and you're so enthusiastic and, you know, the patients will see that you're enthusiastic about this and they'll kind of buy into it too. And, you know, that enhances placebo and it seems to be working for a while. And then after a while, like the effect just kind of disappears and then you look back and go, well, well that was rubbish. And, and that's basically been the case for nearly all of these fads, almost all of them that I've seen over all the time is that they've just sort of washed out. So in the long term, hopefully, this is a weighing engine. So in the end, if stuff really works, people are going to keep using it because they'll see benefits of it. But in the short term, what should you do for your patients tomorrow? Hopefully not get too swayed by the hype and then go and figure out where the science is there. That's a hard thing to do because there's you know, not a lot of great science about a lot of the stuff that we do. So I'm just going to interrupt Rod to have a little break. And in part two, we have a little chat around ACL reconstruction, decision-making criteria for that process, but also where clinicians go to learn, which is a really interesting topic that Rod wrote about in an editorial piece a few years ago. So great part one, but a fantastic part two coming up with Rod. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Black Box are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Black Box manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Black Box, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at Black Box Fitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. 
through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Satanta College. Led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, Satanta College provides coaches with the opportunity to take their career to the next level with qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science. Satanta's blended learning approach ensures you have flexibility to continue your studies alongside your coaching practice. And lectures are delivered online with practical workshops held in locations across Ireland, the UK, the United States, India and South Africa. Courses are designed by experts in the field of sports science, including Professor Ian Jeffries and Des Ryan, with a focus on practically applying the most current methodologies in your day-to-day coaching. Applications are now open for the MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, along with a range of strength and conditioning programs from certificate to degree level. Visit stantacollege.com for more information and how to apply. And now back to the episode with Rod. The next point was based on your um, comment around performance benefit, uh, either way, on, on, on Nordics. And then I've, I've uh, referenced Bass's review in, um, in, yeah. in our notes. What's, what's your thoughts, either way, from performance benefit of, of Nordics, not only from an injury risk reduction point of view? Yeah, again, the confidence intervals are wide, um, but the, the argument from coaches, and you know, I'll always go by what the coaches will say, was that some of these coaches were saying that, you know, if you do Nordics, basically you're making your performance worse. And well, why is that? And it was based around a, a theoretical argument. Okay, Nordics are slow, isometric, slow eccentric, two-leg, knee-dominant, you know, non-functional. Okay, well, I, I get that. So in theory, that shouldn't transfer to high-speed eccentric, which is what um, is happening during fast running. Well, in theory, they don't work, but in practice, it doesn't seem to make any difference that they are non-functional. Um, so, you know, again, the point estimate at the moment says maybe it makes you a tiny bit faster over certain distances, but there's certainly no clear performance detriment. So anybody who's saying don't do this because it'll slow you down, um, I, I think you're on pretty shaky ground now. So if anything, maybe there's a tiny performance benefit, but confidence intervals are pretty wide and, you know, they could be due to other effects, but I, I'd be pretty happy to bet with anybody who wants to try and take some money off me that you're not going to get worse at fast running if you do Nordics. That brings me on nicely, nice little segue, because the recent popularity, again, going back to what we've just just spoken about around courses and uh, information, the sprint world, sprint mechanics, everywhere. If you do a podcast on speed, people will absolutely lap it up. So... The next point is in, in the impact of improvements on sprint mechanics with hamstring injuries. Obviously, there's the, the work from Jordan Mendeguccia, which was relatively recent, I think, um, and who's who's also been on the podcast. But I'd like to get your thoughts on this area as well. Yeah, again, it's a, it's there's some pretty strongly held opinions in the area, and okay, 
I'll take a step back a little bit here because this is again the, the advantage of being old is I've already made all the mistakes, <laughs> you know, so you can learn from it. And the what I thought my PhD was going to be on was because I was into baseball and throwing and I pitched myself and everyone told me I threw wrong, you know, with the wrong mechanics. I threw with my arm down low and it moved a long way sideways and did whatnot. And so I bought into that. And what my PhD was going to be about is um, finding the perfect throwing mechanics. And in doing that, I was then going to be able to train up, you know, we, we could do intervention programs and get people to throw perfectly. Injury rates will go down. Um, performance is going to go up and surely someone will give me a Nobel Prize for that. The dream. Absolutely. That's <laughs> That was just clear. I just absolutely knew it. And then, yeah, it did turn out that there was an association between throwing mechanics and different stresses that went on different tissues. If you threw like this, there was more stress going on this tissue than that tissue. But in practice, it got totally swamped by what happened was um, this week, the coach would decide, I'm going to teach the kids a new pitch. So suddenly they would triple their throwing loads. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay, well, you're putting 25% more load through your only collateral if you throw like this. But then the coach triples the workload. Surprise, surprise, everyone's arm gets sore, good mechanics or bad. But then you take a step back and say, well, look, if you're putting slightly more load than this other player, or if you had have thrown this way, but you've been doing that for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you know, take the guy who goes to a gym three times a week and lifts weights. He's putting higher loads through these muscles, these tendons, these ligaments. What happens to that person? Well, those tendons, muscles and ligaments adapt to the loads you're placing on them. So the notion that I'll change your mechanics and that'll reduce the amount of load and everything's going to be happy days, well, you've got to prove to me first you can change the mechanics on the pitch. If I had to guess now, I'd say maybe in the context of track and field where nobody gets in your way, you start when the starter fires a gun and you're just going to go in a straight line, I reckon maybe you could change mechanics there. Can you change mechanics actually during team sports when there's a whole bunch of other stuff going around? You run slowly, you run fast, you change direction, you react to things, it's unpredictable. I reckon that's a huge leap to be able to say that. And then even if you can, should you? If this person has been loading their tissues like that for the last however long, and you are actually able to change the loads going through, you know, whatever, tissue X, biceps femoris, long head, that load's got to go somewhere unless you plan on running slower. So you're now going to put some more load somewhere else. Now what happens? So I, I reckon there's just too many steps at the moment for me to say this is a good place to be able to, to spend a lot of time in your rehab. What would be the other side of it? Well, are you going to make these people come back to play faster or are you going to reduce re-injury rates? So at the moment, you know, on the basis of we're now close to about 400 hamstring injuries that we've pretty closely documented. Our return to play median time is 21 days and our re-injury rate is 7%. So for a meaningful change, you're probably going to have to get that faster by about five days and you're going to have to cut the rate of injury from say 7% down to about 3%. So to do that number needed to treat, you're going to have to get, you know, be able to do this for a couple of hundred people to prevent one re-injury. They're pretty small effect sizes. You're going to have to have a pretty massive benefit to be able to prove that that's the case. And again, I'll quite happily take any bets that we will not see that happen in my lifetime. I'll bet whatever you want on that one. 
so that's from a, from a rehab point of view. Yeah. But in a performance setting during a, uh, a sprint session or a, or, yeah. or a warm-up or wherever people can get it in in the limited time that they've got, yeah. same same thought process from, from you? So if these are so if it's in the context of do this drill to put this load through these tissues or change the way that you're going to running, yeah. uh, fine, knock yourself out. Um, I, I feel more around do these drills so they're putting some load through your tissue, so it's just like another exercise. Yeah, good, happy days. Um, if you do that, though, I, I can't see why you're also upset about putting load through tissues via other means like heavy eccentric overload, <laughs> like a Nordic exercise. You know, why do you get so upset about that being part of a, a holistic program? If I had to put all my eggs in one basket, I'd say do fast running. If your sport involves lots of fast running, a lot of your preparation should be a lot of fast running. And that's the guts of our rehab program. As quickly as we possibly can, we get people running in some form. Usually it's by about day three, post-injury. They're doing, you know, you wouldn't really call it running, but they're, they're trying to run. And that has to get back up as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, as much as possible. So that's, that's the 80% of our rehab. Or, you know, it's the one thing that comprises 80% of our rehab. And we do all the other stuff as well. But that's the thing that I would have to say that's what's giving the biggest bang for the buck in the stuff that we're doing. So a coach's uh, thought process around that, again, leaving the rehab setting, but going into into a team sport, um, healthy healthy athlete setting. So it's increasing the amount of sprinting that people are doing. The thought process around that would be, well, if my athlete or athletes are sprinting with suboptimal um, mechanics, is that not just exasperating the problem that these guys are potentially going to have when it comes to hamstring injuries um yeah look potentially um but then i'm going to have to get you to pin down exactly what are the bad mechanics Mm -hmm. so tell me what's wrong and get me five sprint experts in the room and to tell me what are the i'll guarantee you will get more than five opinions on what wrong mechanics are so which guru am i going to pick here and (laughs) and which guru which week because they all seem to change their opinion from month to month from year to year on what the good mechanics are and these mechanics it, it seems are the same irrespective of whether you're usain bolt who's this big or you're a short guy, or you're a guy whose game is based around acceleration or top end speed or whatever else, it seems to be there are perfect mechanics for all of these different body types, irrespective of the demands that are getting placed on them. So the my prior on this one is, I think that's a, that's a pretty low plausibility one that it's going to come out. And if I just had to do something, I'd say, guys, how about we do a lot of fast running? And let's just try and get you to run fast. Now, if you can get somebody who's got good biomechanical knowledge, who's able to identify that this particular person at this particular phase of running is doing this thing wrong, and if we could possibly change that, they'll run faster. So again, that's why I feel like that might work in track and field, where we really can spend a lot of time on, okay, mate, from your start to transition, if we change this and we do that, you know, you can shave 0.01 off. And that's a big deal in a 100-meter runner. If you can reliably do that just by a technique fix, again, happy days. 
the midfielder chasing a guy who's just got away from him? Is he really going to be, hang on a second, I need to... And can you make that automatic? I just don't think that's been proven. And, you know, the, where I came from with the throwing stuff, why I thought this was a no-brainer was baseball pitching, I make my throw when I'm good and ready. So I can stand there, time's out, stand still, take my time, get set, make my throw. Football's not like that. Yeah, track and field is, sort of. You know, you have to start when the starter says go. But people aren't getting in your way and you're not having to react to those other things. So at the moment, I'd still say just my prior on this is you're, you're going to get a much bigger bang from your buck by just exposing them to fast running and lots of it. One thing that I probably should have asked right at the start, and apologies for, for that, but we've mentioned injury risk a couple of times. I know this is an area that understanding risk is is something that you know well. So when people are diving into the research or hearing, again, infographics or talking to the coaches around this uh, based yeah. on our previous uh, little chat, how can people understand risk and the numbers that are thrown out there better to potentially get a clearer picture of what's going on? Yeah, that's a, probably a, a whole chat by itself um, because it's so easy to confuse people in that regard. Like, um, just trying to think of a good example. There was a, a recent one a while ago. That's a contradiction. There was one a while ago uh, where something came out that eating bacon doubles your risk of a certain kind of cancer, whatever it was, you know. And then it was unequivocal. And, you know, you say that to a normal person, doubles your risk of cancer. Well, geez, that's oh really bad. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, uh, relative versus absolute risk. This was a very rare cancer which doubles the risk. So if you then presented it another way, which said, okay, do you want to be one chance out of a thousand or two chances out of a thousand of getting this cancer? So that means you are 999 times or 998 times out of a thousand, you won't get this cancer. You can present those two things either way. So trying to put it back into context of that, you know, your athletes might understand. And that's one of the reasons why we looked at hamstrings. About 11% of your squad every year is going to get a hamstring injury. So if you've got a squad of 25, then we're going to get two or three hamstring injuries. If you can halve it, those two or three hamstring injuries go down to maybe one or two. You probably won't notice that year to year. Oh, we got one less hamstring injury this year. But, you know, one year it's two, one year it's five, one year it's one. But over the course of the whole time, over your whole career, if you roughly halve those, maybe you will actually start to notice that. So by being able to frame it in the context of the athletes you see, how many of them you see, put it into a real-world context, and now what's the cost of this intervention? And again, I mean, we keep coming back to Nordics. It's like I'm some Nordic evangelist. I just think it's an <laughs> it's an easy bang for your buck because after you've done the nasty two weeks in pre-season, you then only have to do two sets of four reps. That's it. Like that doesn't seem like a huge intervention for something that potentially has, you know, in our case, that's 20,000 days lost to posterior thigh muscle injuries over the last eight years. Imagine if we could get that down to 10,000 days. That's 10,000 days of training we've given back to the coaches. That's where I think we can really make a big um, influence. I'd like to take a little right turn and go down the ACL route. I know we're a little bit pushed for time, but um, hopefully hopefully we're all good. Um, decision criteria for return to play following uh, following ACL. Is there anything that you see out there? Any, like you say, you've got plenty of people coming through um, the Rasputar. So you're speaking to those people, you're seeing lots of examples of this. 
Is there anything in particular that you're seeing that is, again, use the word suboptimal when it comes to using certain things to base a decision on when maybe that's a little bit ropey? Yeah, so here we're um, we're much earlier in our our cycle, if you like, in looking at this return to play stuff. And this all grew out of some great work that Polly Kritzis did, um, one of our physios who was working here for a while, who went back and basically just did a chart review. And he ended up with, uh, started off with about a couple of hundred professional athletes, footballers, who'd had ACLs done. So it's a pretty big sample. And when they're doing their rehab, um, you know, we want them to do all of our criteria and meet all of our criteria and do it but the patient's perfectly entitled if they say listen I'm ready to go back and play you know I feel like I can do it I can do it we can't headlock them and make them stay here so we had this natural experiment of people who chose to go back to play having not met all of our criteria compared to the people who stayed and actually ticked all the boxes and did everything and the people who chose to go back and play they got re-injured at about 30 percent clip and those that met all of our criteria got injured at about a 10 percent clip so we'd about you know cut it from 30 percent down to 10 so you only had to put five athletes and we're going to you know number needed to treat there's five we only have to have that for five athletes and we're going to prevent one re-injury of an acl so that's a pretty big effect size but what that also told us is, okay, in these guys who are going back to high demand sports, we still think 10% is too many to re-injure. So that's now where we're looking at. And this is, we're now relatively early in what we hope is going to be a pretty long process where we're measuring everything in these guys from pre-op every six weeks all the way out to discharge. And then we're going to follow all of these guys. And of course, some of them are going to re-injure, some of them won't. And then what is it we're missing so did was there something that we should have seen at that discharge test which then is associated with the guys who went on and got re-injured or not um, and then how early on in the rehab process should we have identified that um, so at the stage we're at at the moment we're just at the stage of we again i say we it's not me doing this this is ruler kotsafaki's work she's done all of the modeling of the acl the load on the acl during the testing um, and she's shown, I think, really well that some of the stuff we were doing, you know, we, we measure what's easy, like hop for distance, but it turns out that how far you hop is only determined a little bit by the, the work your knee does. Mostly it's determined by your hip and your ankle. So two athletes, um, if one of them isn't using their knee terribly much, they can easily hide it if you're measuring how far they hop. A vertical hop, um, it's one-third, one-third, one-third. Hip, knee, ankle, both on the way up and on the way down. So that's better, but that still means it's two-thirds hip and ankle. So there's, again, a lot of space there for um, athletes to hide deficiencies in their knee. I really hope it's not the case, but I, I, I'm getting the feeling that you have to do the full 3D biomechanical catastrophe and make it subject-specific to be able to predict the loads that are going on um, through the individual ACL of that particular person. I really want it to be a simple clinical test that we can have where, yes, you're ready, no, you're not, but this is a really multifactorial problem, and I think biomechanics is going to be a big part of it, but there's a ton of other things that are going into this one as well. So at the moment, I think we're all guessing a bit, um, but this is a real watch this space and a hope in two years we're going to have a ton more information. Our brand new lab has just opened up 
and in 10 years from now um, we should be getting a bit closer but I know that's a very <laughs> disappointing answer for you but it's just we're, we're much earlier on in the stage with ACLs it just they're not as frequent as they are the muscle injuries so the single leg hop for distance yep. that's a common yep. uh, decision criteria test that people are using that you would potentially recommend cutting uh, out yeah well just don't pay as much attention to okay. it because athletes can pass that and not be doing terribly much with their knee so they can hide big knee deficits by using their hip and their ankle a lot more so if it's part of your battery um, certainly don't make it the only part of your battery and i'd be weighting that one much less than say um, the vertical excuse me the vertical hop for example um, but yeah loads of other criteria as well i'm not trying to distill this down to just do this one of test course, and you're going to be fine yeah so that that single leg uh vertical hop that would obviously need uh that would be done on a force plate from yeah yeah, yeah okay. you probably can do it with um you know like something like the my jump app which is just flight time so you know force plates one of your measures of how high you go is just flight time impulse momentum of course is much better because somebody who cheats by going up in the air and then just pulling their leg under them when they land seems like they were longer in the air but if you have good attention to their form when they do it you could probably get away with just flight time and that's something everybody with a high-speed camera which you know we all carry around in our pockets now could do so as a you know a test being done every week definitely um, yeah, like I said though I, I feel like we're gonna need to do the full catastrophe on these guys to really be able to tell uh, drill right down into it and even then i'm not i'm i'm 50 50 on whether it is we're actually going to be able to find a test or a battery of tests which absolutely proves yes you're ready no you're not ready um and and you know just to give you an idea at the moment so we're doing we have six different stations so they we do all the questionnaires we've got some instrumented laxity testing both of ap and rotational strength of the acl we do clinical exam we're doing all the hop jump and movement testing we're doing isokinetic strength quads and hamstrings handheld dyno for hip for plantar flexors we're doing as much as we possibly can all of that then gets factored in okay this patient what's the sport they're going back to what's their past history what are the demands that they want to put under it before we make that decision about going back to play sorry to go to the on-field testing and then the on-field testing is kind of the functional movement capacity and all of that stuff so that's kind of our whole battery uh, but at the moment i can that, that's just what we're doing uh, I, I don't know if it's any good or not I'm, I'm only going to be able to tell you in a few years time if our results get any better again this i promise my last question no worries. <clears throat> so the single leg hop for distance potentially put less weighting on that yeah. is there anything else that may also fall under that banner of maybe you're doing it but don't look at it too in depth oh, oh. that other that people are doing regularly yeah, look, I can't really tell you what other people are doing regularly so much, but um, just with that single leg hop for distance, it's the distance is the bad measure. Yes, yes. So if you actually measure the 3D biomechanics of what's going on, the way that they shift their loads around in there tells you a lot. But if you're going to go and do the full catastrophe of 3D biomechanics, there's better tests that you can do. You know, we do the hop for distance because they just need a tape measure, put it out in a hallway, off you go you know single leg or triple hop you know these ones like that it's just the distance doesn't tell you that much if they pass it 
If they fail it, yeah, okay, it probably does tell you that they're not ready. If they pass it, it doesn't tell you that they are ready. If you do 3D biomechanics as well, yes, that's going to tell you more. Perfect. I'm going to let you go because you're, you're a busy man. But last but not least, where can people get to know more about you, more about your work, Rod? Um, oh, geez, I don't know. Um, Aspatar's got a website. Um, but look, come and visit us someday. That's probably easiest. Yeah, come over for the World Cup, drop in and have a look around. That'd probably be best. Happy days. The door's always open. Absolutely. Coffee's always good. Happy days. <laughs> the coffee is actually good. <laughs> is it? Yeah. yeah. Is it? I roast my own beans. It's all it's all you Aussies having the having the good influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah what's well, Eastern Europeans when we all grew up? The coffee culture has been embedded in Australians since the '60s, Second World War um, emigres. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Good knowledge. Right, mate, I'm going to let you crack on. But um, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know it's a busy uh, busy time of year for you, as probably always is, but um, appreciate it. Cheers, Rod. My pleasure indeed. Thanks for the Thanks, opportunity. Mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 369 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Firstly, big thanks to Rod for giving up his time. I know he had a medical to do immediately after we spoke, and I think I, uh, I think I kept him more than I probably should have done. But thank you for, for, to Rod for giving up his time um, to make this happen. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. So next week, we have a college coach from the US. Following that, we have a high school coach again from the US and then some fantastic guests following that from all around the world. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.